Hey, everybody. So, as you can imagine, uh, I have been upsetting people from all sides of the political aisle ever since the current crisis in, in Gaza and southern Israel began. A lot of people that I like and that I respect, and I still like and respect, are totally incapable of having a rational conversation about the Israel-Palestine conflict. On People on both sides, by the way. And uh, people who are just so far in the bag for one side or the other that they end up validating every vicious stereotype that the other side attaches to them. I just know too many people, actual real people, from both sides of this conflict to be able to dehumanize either one. I couldn't really convince myself of it even if I wanted to. I just I, I know too many of these people. There are a lot of people out there who have spent pretty much every day since October 7th trying to get everybody else to hate whoever they hate and to not care or even celebrate when their own side massacres civilians. The same argument for group guilt and collective responsibility that bin Laden used to justify 9-11 and Hamas uses to target Israeli civilians has been made online, uh, on right-wing talk radio, and on cable news to rationalize the mass killing of Palestinian civilians. And those people will actually attack anyone who tries to humanize their chosen enemies. But of course, all of these are just people. Most of them are regular people, just like you or me. Most Americans, maybe other than the hard left campus protester types, don't seem to have a problem humanizing the Israelis. They're more familiar. But I found a lot of people, uh, even good people with generally good intentions, often have a lot of trouble convincing themselves that the Palestinians are really fully human too, in the, in the same way they mean it when they, when they talk about themselves. Now, part of the reason for that is that what most of us know about the Palestinians is filtered through media that almost always has a political angle and that shows us what it needs to show us to implant and reinforce a particular way of looking at the situation. It's really hard to pierce through that. But I got an email recently that really moved me. It has to do with that, and I, I want to read it to you here. Before I get to that part, uh, I want to set it up with a few short bits from interviews of Israeli soldiers who served in the West Bank and gave anonymous interviews to an Israeli veterans organization to tell their stories. Many of their stories describe harassment, assault, and theft committed by Israeli soldiers against Palestinians, as well as severe beatings and executions of unarmed people. But for some reason, it was the more mundane stories that tended to stick with me. Maybe they're easier to relate to, or maybe I just figure, you know, they're going to be sociopaths everywhere, and in a situation like that, like this, those people are going to find opportunities to do what they're going to do. Uh, but I'd be hesitant to draw any broad conclusions 
from their behavior, just as I caution people not to draw conclusions about all Palestinians because of the actions of a group like Hamas. You know, these stories are not unique to Israelis. They have nothing to do with Jews or anything like that. They're stories that are going to come out of any long-term military occupation. It's inevitable. What I'm about to read is from soldiers who served in the West Bank, to repeat myself, not Gaza. They were put together by a veterans organization called Breaking the Silence, which admittedly is about as popular among the Israeli right as Noam Chomsky is with right-wingers in America. But they've been doing this a long time, and while people attribute an agenda to the group, which I don't doubt exists in some respect, uh, the interviews themselves are real interviews with Israeli soldiers about their experiences. Here's an example from of one of the more mundane ones. This is from a paratrooper who served near Nablus in the West Bank. Soldier. We did all kinds of very sketchy work in Area A. Area A is the portion of the West Bank in which, according to the terms of the 1995 Washington Agreement, fall under the jurisdiction of the Palestinian Authority for security and civilian issues, or supposed to anyway. That could mean, for example, going into Tubas on a Friday when the market is packed to set up a surprise checkpoint in the middle of the village. One time we arrived to set up a checkpoint like that on Friday morning, and we started to spread out, inspecting vehicles and every car that passed. 300 meters from us, some kids start a small demonstration. They throw rocks at us, but they come maybe 10 meters and don't hit us. They start cursing us and everything. At the same time, a crowd of people gathers. Of course, this was followed by aiming our weapons at the kids. You can call it self-defense. Interviewer. What was the purpose of the checkpoint? Soldier. Just to show our presence. To get into a firefight? We didn't know whether that would happen or not. In the end, we got out without a scratch, without anything happening. But the company commander lost it. He asked one of the grenade launchers to fire a riot control grenade toward the demonstrators, the children. The grenade launcher refused, and afterward he was treated terribly by the company commander. That's what happened. Another time we went into Tubas at 3 in the morning and threw stun grenades in the street. For no reason, just to wake people up. Interviewer. What was the point? Soldier. To say... We're here. The IDF is here. In general, they told us that if some terrorist heard the IDF in the village, then maybe he'd come outside to fight. No one ever came out. It seems that the goal was just to show the local population that the IDF is here, and it's a common policy. The IDF has no problem doing it. But we didn't understand why we were throwing grenades. We threw a grenade, we heard a boom, and we saw people waking up. When we got back, they'd say, great operation, but we didn't understand why. This happened every day. A different force from the company did it each time. It was just part of the routine, part of our lives. Again, this is a mundane example. Nobody's getting killed or beaten or anything. But just try to put yourself in the position of the Palestinian civilians in those villages. 
you know, foreign army setting up checkpoints in the market, searching people, and then going through your village every night and throwing a few stun grenades just to wake you up, just to harass you and let you know who's in charge and that they can do whatever they want. Now, these kinds of operations are obviously not intended to win over the civilian population. In fact, they're guaranteed to alienate and anger the civilian population. And so you ask yourself what their purpose is. And, and it becomes self-evident, I think. The purpose is intimidation, harassment and intimidation. This one's from an artillery officer who served near Gush Etzion, a group of Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank, describing a kind of operation that they called Happy Purim. Soldier. Normally, the point of Happy Purim, uh, they call it this, this kind of an operation, Happy Purim, because they're referring to a tradition where kids would make a bunch of noise and create chaos in the streets to celebrate the Purim holiday. Normally, the point of Happy Purim is to stop people from sleeping. It means going into a village in the middle of the night, going around throwing stun grenades and making noise. Not all night long, but at some specific time. It doesn't matter how long you do it. They don't set an end time. They say, okay, they threw stones at you today in Husan, so do a Happy Purim there. Interviewer. Is that what's called demonstrating a presence? Soldier. I'm sure you've heard the term Happy Purim before. If not, you'll hear it. Yes, demonstrating a presence. Sometimes we got instructions from the battalion to do something like that. It's part of the activities that happened before, and the interviewer cuts in, what's the rationale behind that kind of operation? Soldier. If the village initiates an operation, you're going to initiate a lack of sleep. I never checked how much this kind of operation actually stops people from sleeping because you aren't in the village for four hours throwing stun grenades every ten minutes. If we did that three times, the IDF would run out of stun grenades. These are operations that happen at a specific time. And this last one that I'll read is from an infantry soldier who served near Nablus. Interviewer, during your service in the territories, what shook you up the most? Soldier, the searches we did in Hares, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. They said there are 60 houses that have to be searched. I said there must have been some warning from intelligence. I tried to justify it to myself. Interviewer, was this during the day or night? Soldier, at night. Interviewer. You went out as a patrol? Soldier. No, the whole division. It was a battalion operation. They spread out over the whole village, took control of the school, smashed the locks, the classrooms. One room was used as the investigation room for the Shin Bet. That's Israel's domestic spy agency. One room for detainees. One room for the soldiers to rest. I remember it particularly annoyed me that they chose a school. Anyway, we went house by house, knocking at two in the morning on the family's door. They're scared to death, girls peeing in their pants with fear. We bang on the doors, and there's a feeling of, we'll show them. It's fanatical. We go into the house and turn everything upside down. Interviewer. What's the procedure? Soldier. 
gather the family in one room, put a guard there, tell the guard to keep his gun on them, and then search the whole house. We received another order that everyone born after 1980 until everyone between 16 and 29, doesn't matter who, bring them in cuffed and blindfolded. They yelled at old people. One of them had an epileptic seizure. They carried on yelling at him. He doesn't speak Hebrew, and they continue yelling at him. The medic treated him. We did the rounds. Every house we went into, they took everyone between 16 and 29 and brought them to the school. They sat tied up in the schoolyard. Interviewer. Did they tell you the purpose of all this? Soldier. To locate weapons, but we didn't find any weapons in the end. They confiscated kitchen knives. What shocked me the most was that there was also stealing. One person took 20 shekels. Another, people went into the houses and looked for things to steal. This was a very poor village. At one point, guys were saying, What a bummer, there's nothing to steal here. I took some markers just so I could say I stole something. Interviewer. That was said in a conversation among the soldiers. Soldier. Among the soldiers, after the action. There was a lot of joy at people's misery. Guys were happy talking about it. There was a moment where someone they knew was mentally ill started yelling at the soldiers. But one soldier decided he was going to beat him up anyway, so they smashed him. They hit him in his head with the butt of a gun. He was bleeding, and they brought him to the school along with everyone else. There were a pile of arrest orders signed by the battalion commander, ready with one area left blank. They'd fill in that the person was detained on suspicion of disturbing the peace. They just filled in the name and the reason for arrest. It was already signed. I remember there were people with plastic handcuffs that had been put on really tight, and I'd cut them off and put on looser ones. I got to speak with people there. There was one who worked 13 hours a day. Another one, a settler, had brought into Israel to work for him, but after two months he didn't pay him and handed him over to the police. Interviewer. All the people came from that one village? Soldier. Yes. Interviewer. Anything else you remember from that evening? Soldier. It bothered me? A small thing, but it bothered me. There was one house that they just demolished. There's a dog that can find weapons, but they didn't bring him, so they just destroyed a house. The mother watched from the side and cried. The kids sat with her and stroked her. I see how my mom puts so much effort into every corner of our house, and suddenly they come and destroy it. Interviewer. What do you mean they just destroyed a house? Soldier. They smash the floors, turn over sofas, throw plants and pictures, turn over beds, smash the closets, the tiles. There were other smaller things, but this really bothered me. The look on the people whose house you've gone into. It really hurt me to see this. And after all that, they left them for hours, tied up and blindfolded in the school. The order came to free them at four in the afternoon, so that was more than 12 hours. Interviewer. Had there been a terrorist attack in the area earlier? Soldier. No. We didn't even find any weapons. The brigade commander claimed that the Shin Bet did find some intelligence and that there are a lot of guys there who throw stones and now we'll be able to catch them. Things from the operation in Harris are always surfacing in my mind. Interviewer. 
Like what? Soldier. Just the way they looked at us. What was going through their minds, their children's minds. How you can take a woman's son in the middle of the night and put him in handcuffs in a blindfold. Now these are just a few interviews from the first few pages of a book that the organization published. There are many, many more collected over many years, and many of them are infinitely worse than anything I just read. None of this justifies anything done by Hamas or other terrorist groups, and I'm not going to respond to criticisms or accusations that imply that. It goes without saying that Hamas has written itself out of the human race with its savage atrocities against innocent Israeli women and children. I'm just asking you to try to internalize the fact that the Palestinians who grew up their whole lives experiencing things like I just described, that they are human beings. They are just like you. And so ask yourself how you'd feel about the foreign occupying army subjecting you and your mother and your wife and your daughter to that. So this is the email that I received the other day. It's from a young lady, a Palestinian, who lives with relatives in the West Bank, but whose immediate family lives in Gaza and is there now as the Israeli assault is ongoing. Again, I just want everybody, when you find yourself tempted to brush aside the suffering of Palestinian civilians because they're all somehow responsible for the actions of Hamas, or when you see other people doing that, just remember that this is who you're talking about. Begins, Hey, I hope this email finds you well. Apologies in advance for the English. I'm not a native speaker. Originally from Gaza. I'm, and she gives her name, 20 years old. I was able to secure the necessary permits to move to the West Bank about two years ago to stay with my aunt and uncle while I conduct my studies. I hope to become a nurse in Hebron. I found your tweets a while ago and have followed you on Twitter a while. I listened to your podcast series for weeks. Some of it I knew, some of it I didn't. It was nice to hear a non-biased, non-Arab, who, presumably not Jewish, narrates the history of my people. At the start of episode two, I realized they're just like me. The Jews, I mean. They wanted their own land and came with hopes and dreams of securing a better future for their loved ones and their families. I think there's probably a Jewish girl my age wanting peace with us. I know your media views us as vermin, but we aren't. One of the reasons I follow you is not just your podcast, but you see us as humans, which is so rare for people in America. I don't believe Israelis are bad or that Jewish people are bad. I know in Gaza there are many that do, but it is sometimes hard to escape that after what they have done. My family still lives in a cage. The blockade has destroyed the economy sometimes 10 hours a day without electricity. Israel has a thriving economy, the tech center of the Middle East. We don't even have our own airport. We don't have good infrastructure. We haven't been able to rebuild. We have nothing. 
In the West Bank, even in the West Bank, they terrorize us all the time. It makes people angry and resentful. But there are many people like me and my friend Fatima who even prayed when the attacks happened on the 7th for the Israelis. I pray Allah grants them jana. Those people at the concert did not choose this life any more than I did. My heart is sad for their families. What was done to them cannot be forgiven ever. And Allah won't forgive those that did it. My own parents and siblings are in Gaza. Every day I hear from them, I thank Allah that they're alive. He's merciful for sparing them. They would rather die than leave Gaza and never be able to go back. When the bombs came near my home in 2019, I did not care. I was ready. I did not cower. When you grow up in Gaza, you prepare for death. My heart is so broken for my people, I do not have enough tears left. Every day, new buildings, my old school destroyed, my uncle's shop in Gaza, in ruins. One of the reasons I adored your podcast and listened to it twice was you make us sound so similar. By us, I mean Palestinians and the Jewish. We are just both brothers and sisters, Jewish and Arab who want the same thing, a place to call home. They were just like me. The difference is when they die, your media mourns them in a way it never mourns us. In 2018, so many of us died, and yet nobody mourns us and humanizes us in death. They have front-page articles for lone IDF soldiers who die in Israel. But when our boys die in the West Bank, nothing is said. Just those dumb Arabs that deserve it. We did not get a say in how Gaza was run. I would not vote for them. My dad, in fact, hates Hamas. He calls the Hamas leadership corrupt baboons. He knew young boys who he teaches who joined the resistance, and he feels so sad for them. Sad because they were sweet, innocent boys who saw their families killed by Israelis and then are driven to go fight for a group that does not care for them. My friend Rakim I played with when I was younger. He saw both of his parents die from the Israelis. He also saw his grandparents, one sister, and baby brother, age two, die. Only him and his sister lived. He carried his little brother's corpse for hours when the bombs came to Gaza. He was only 11. Those are the boys that become angry and vengeful, and rather than nurture the anger to do something good, Hamas exploits it. My dad always says Hamas does not care for the lives of these boys, and that those boys could have done something great had they been given a chance, but instead they will die fighting for leaders who do not care about them. Good boys who are now bad men and ruined. But what can we do? Fight with our bare hands against guns? Just as silly as to think we can fight off Israeli bombs with our hands. And once the resistance is gone, I don't think we will have peace. I cannot see the occupation ending. What is next for Gaza? I do not even blame IDF soldiers. They're just as brainwashed as Hamas to do their job. I blame the Israeli government for making them treat us this way. Their government is viciously evil. Towns, shops, homes in Gaza destroyed. They don't even allow in building materials. 
So many dead in Gaza. The surveillance in the West Bank is now worse than before. Settlers are legally allowed to carry guns, to shoot at us. But if we fight back, where will be our right to defend against the settlers? Children are traumatized. The material conditions for Palestinians won't improve. And through the ashes, Hamas's ideas will be, turn- will be martyred. And then it will change a whole group of young, innocent kids who will become even more vengeful after seeing their families killed. You cannot bomb your way to changing Hamas's ideas. Only improvement in our current state will see us change in making sure the children of Palestine understand the Jews also care for them. Education is a must. Then the Palestinian children will grow up caring for the Jewish. Otherwise, if they are forced into a cage, then you will see something new emerge in a decade's time and a new group will commit something much worse than the events of October 7th. If you ever have a chance to come to Palestine, my university would love to welcome you. We've had a few Americans visit that are sympathetic to us and like understanding our side of the conflict and how we can make peace and get a proper state. We are very gracious hosts. I shared your podcast with my two friends. I hope they will listen. They promised me they would, but it is extremely long, so it may take them time to get through. My uncle, Abdullah, is listening. He's 15 minutes through episode 1. He's such a kind gentleman who wants to make peace with the Jewish folk, even though he knows they think badly of us more than ever now. He said he was sad when Yitzhak Rabin died. He said Rabin was good. He hates Netanyahu. Some of the comments I see on your page make me sad. I want to comment, then stop myself so as not to invite hate. I also run a fan account on Twitter, so I think it would just draw too much attention. Ha ha. But I wish people could see we too are human beings with simple dreams. Mine is to go to a Harry Styles concert or a Kehlani concert, and to get 100,000 TikTok followers, and to visit my amazing friends in Europe who I met on Twitter. For the Americans who see us as human beings also, the way they, for the Americans to see us as human beings also, the way they see Israelis as human. We aren't that different from the Americans. We just have a different flag. I also want my country to become liberated, to end our occupation and to restore the dignity of my people. I want a peaceful government. I do not want the Jewish to die any more than I want my own to die. I do not want to see buildings and homes and stores in my city turned into nothing. I don't want to be sad every time my family calls because I'm so anxious thinking someone has died. The situation at home is so bad, and I don't know why some Americans seem to like seeing us suffer. I wrote a lot here. I have also to email a few other Twitter persons who are American and understanding of our side to thank them. But once again, as a girl from Palestine, thank you for telling our story. Thank you for telling their story, too, and how our tales overlap in a way that many cannot appreciate. May you have great prosperity and happiness. Well wishes, and she gives her name. You know, look, I I know I can veer off into polemic and melodrama on this issue sometimes, 
But if I do, it's because I really hate seeing people that I know are actually good, normal, reasonable people talking about people like this young lady as if they're animals. You know, they, These are human beings. And the vast majority of them are perfectly normal human beings who want peace, just like this girl does. So be on the side of people like her, you know, and of the innocent Israelis who suffer. And be against the extremists on all sides who dehumanize the other and try to drag all the rest of us down to their level. Don't be on the side of the extremists and the innocents on one side against the extremists and innocents on the other. Be on the side of the innocents, of the women and the children, of the vast majority of people involved in this conflict against the people on both sides who start fights and then call the rest of us in for backup. Anyway, I know this is unpolished, but I wanted to just get something out to you. Now, I've got to put the finishing touches on a speech I'm giving next week on Nietzsche and Dostoevsky, and I've got to finish updating the episode I did earlier on the Israel-Palestine conflict since 1948. All my Substack people will have heard that one. It's about three or four hours long, uh, but I've added a lot and corrected a few things, and I will be releasing the new version ASAP. Thanks for listening.